Hey, how you doing? Welcome to week two of the He Said, She Said. Hope you've uh, been tracking with us. Um, uh, this past Halloween, my wife and I bought a bunch of candy like we always do. And, uh, but my wife got a little concerned because it wasn't that far into the night that um, we had almost run out. And um, so she says to me, she says, well, didn't we buy more candy than this? And I said, well, I guess that's it. You know, let's just uh, turn off the lights and just pretend we're not home when people knock. I mean, it just seems like the right thing to do, you know. And uh, so she said, I, I don't know. I, I just uh, I thought there was more candy. And so she goes into the, pan- into the pantry and she's looking in and then she sees, um, you know, you know, that there's, those, there's those canned goods that you have in your pantry that you never use, but they're there. And she sees like tucked away behind that. She sees this giant bag of Reese's peanut butter cups. Um, and she's like, what's this? And I said, I don't know. I think it was Xander, um, which is my 18 month old son, who was a year at that time. And I and she says, uh, really, it was Xander. And I said, all right, fine. I'll admit it was me and Xander. We both are in on it. And um, so I confess to it. Now, the funny part is so she takes it out and she puts the. The, the puts them out she's, and she's giving them out freely to all these little kids. You know, it's that's horrible thing. And so and then I, I go into the kitchen and I'm going to get a bottle of water and I see something. I see like this thing behind the toaster and I look and it's a bag of almond joy, like my wife's favorite candy, almond joy. And I'm like, ha! And so I come out and I show her the almond joy and she's uh, like, well, I don't know where that came from. And uh, and I'm like, oh, you know where that came from anyway. She cracked like a guilty person on law and order. I mean, she couldn't stand, you know, when I, my, my cross-examination. Anyway, um, I will tell you this. Uh, the, I, I tell you that story because I, I really do believe that Reese's, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, which I do have Reese's Peanut Butter Cups right here. Um, and I know that some, I know where some of you are thinking, like, oh, Pastor Bob, whenever, sometimes he, like, throws food out into the crowd. And, uh, like, remember that time he made a hot fudge sundae? And uh, some of you here for the first time, you threw a hot fudge Sunday. Well, not exactly. It was like a light toss to someone. But anyway, um, I'm not throwing this because I plan on eating it later. Um, Sorry. Sorry. I'm just being honest. I'm not being generous, but I am being honest. Um, Well, here's the thing. I really do believe Reese's Reese's peanut butter cups are one of mankind's greatest inventions. I really do. Like going to the moon, pyramids in Egypt, Reese's peanut butter cups. I mean, it's like in that order. I mean, it's right there. And... uh, now, and here's the thing. The thing that's awesome about Reese's peanut butter cups is that it's not like this intricate thing, right? It's just two ingredients. It's chocolate, awesome, peanut butter, which I'm like close to joining a 12-step program of my love for peanut butter. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm, I have issues with peanut butter. I love peanut butter. And, um, and so, and that, but that's the thing. And then you put these two awesome things together and it forms something even more awesome, which you didn't even think was possible, but it is. And uh, and the thing about Reese's peanut butter cups that I, I do think is so interesting is that you can't actually say like, oh, you know, I'm going to get this Reese's peanut butter cups. But see, I don't like peanut butter, but I'm just going to eat the chocolate. Can't do that. Or you can you can't do. Uh, oh, I don't really like chocolate, but I'll just kind of dig out the peanut butter like that's You can't do that. Why? Because there's something that happens when these two great things are fused together. They cease to be chocolate and peanut butter. And then they form this new awesome thing, which is the, the Reese's peanut butter cup. I mean, it's these two things that become one. You see, marriage is exactly the same way. Marriage is God taking two people and making them one. 
And the difference is, is that you and I can look on the back of this and get all the nutritional information. By the way, I don't recommend doing that because that'll depress you. But you can find out, you can see how this gets made, right? You say, oh, they use these ingredients and they put them together and that's how it happens. But sometimes couples, we don't understand how it is that God takes two people and makes them one. The Bible says it this way. It, it calls it that a man and a woman become one flesh, where they seek to be independent and unattached, and God creates them into something new as he joins them together. In my experience as a pastor and, um, and, and also being married for the last 14 years, um, I, I really believe that the root of all problems in marriage is selfishness. I mean, it really boils down to, to self. Because selfishness is the antithesis of what God wants to do in making people one flesh. It's where one flesh is where you and your spouse come into the relationship and you say, I'm not here for me. I'm here to do what's best for our marriage and for our relationship. And that's part of how we become one. Selfishness says something very different. It says it's about me. And one flesh is fine as long as I'm getting what I want out of this relationship. And the moment that I stop getting what I want out of this relationship, well, I'm going to move on and find someone who will. In the very first marriage ceremony in, in, in creation, God takes this man, Adam, and puts him to sleep. He opens up one of his ribs. He takes one out and he forms it into this woman. And then... If you'll read in your notes what happens next, it says, Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, the thing that you have to know, this is very poetic language. In fact, um, in Hebrew, it actually, if you read it in Hebrew, it actually rhymes. Um, and by the way, ladies, just as an aside, it's, you always, it never hurts to find a man who knows how to communicate, um, and especially one who knows how to turn a phrase like that. Um, but what he's saying in these very poetic words, this is now your bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that you are, are me and I am part of you. Uh, we, we are one together, literally and figuratively and spiritually. And so they were literally one flesh, but that's what God wants to do, not just with this very first couple, but with all couples, is to take these two people and fuse them and make them one flesh. But the question becomes, how does God do that? And I want you, if you would, to open with me to the book of Genesis. And what I want to do in our study together is I want to take you to the three places in Scripture where God talks about these two people becoming one. And in every passage... We're going to read the Genesis passage and then the two other passages that quote the Genesis passage to give us a further understanding of what God wants to do in our marriages and in our relationships. Because if we actually do the things that God is saying, the things that God wants to do in our relationships, if we allow him to do it, we will see these two people becoming one. Look at Genesis chapter two in verse 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the first thing that I want you to note in your outline. How do two people become one flesh? The first one is this, is that God commands couples to leave others and to cleave to each other. Now, the thing that 
is important for us to note is God, God commands couples to leave others and cleave to each other. And sometimes what we, what we can think is, is that, well, what, what does that even mean? I mean, do I kind of lose my identity and I just become that other person? Well, no, not at all. In fact, just to give you, it, it, what God is not doing is this. Check this out. So, am I not all you dreamed I would be? Oh, you're fine. Beautiful. It's just that if we're going to be married, I thought we should talk to each other, get to know each other. Ever since I was born, I've been trained to serve you. Yes, I know this. But I would like to know about you. What do you like to do? Whatever you like. <laughs> what kind of music do you like? Whatever kind of music you like. Look, I know what I like, and I know you know what I like because you were trained to know what I like, but I would like to know what you like. For instance, do you have a favorite food? Yes. Good! What is your favorite food? Whatever food you like. This is impossible. Listen, from this moment on, I command you not to obey me. No. Are you saying that no matter what I tell you to do, you will do? Yes, Your Highness. Anything I say you do? Yes, Your Highness. Bark like a dog. A big dog. Woof, 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 woof. Hop on one leg. Woof, 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 woof. Make a noise like an orangutan. Ah! I see the two of you are getting along. You see, that's not what one flesh looks like. One flesh does not mean that you actually lose who you are. You don't lose your identity. It doesn't mean that you just um, become this conglomerate of, of each other. So, you know, we do this with celebrities. They're not Brad and Angelina. They're Brangelina. Um, I, I told my wife, Carrie, that we should never do a name like that. And she asked me why. I said, because then we wouldn't be Bob and Carrie. We would be Barry. And uh, that's weird. And I said, that's just weird. And uh, and so becoming one flesh does not mean that you actually lose the things that you're interested in. It doesn't mean you have to only like the same things. But it, what it does mean, and this is what I want to drill down on for a few minutes. What it does mean is that there is a shift in your primary identity. You see, the first thing that, that God says about someone uh, becoming one flesh is it says that, they, that therefore a man will leave his father and mother. Um, for leaving your father and mother in that culture was a huge deal. Uh, in the ancient Jewish culture, in the Mideast culture, your family was everything. One of the things that happens when people are young Christians and they start reading the Bible is they say, why is there all these lists, all these lists of names and family history and all that? And the reason is because God's showing us where people came from. But the other thing is this, is that God is, is, is showing us the importance of family in the ancient world. So, but for two people to become one flesh, there has to be a shift that takes place from the primary connection being my parents to now my primary connection is with my spouse. You see, there, there's five reasons. I touched on this last time just for a moment, but there's five major reasons that couples fight. 
They fight over money, lack of communication, and sex. Those are the big three. The other two things that couples fight about is their kids and their in-laws. And uh, as I like to say, some people have in-laws, some people have outlaws. Um, but, uh, but, but I guess you know some. Um, but, but here's the thing, is that one of the ways that you know if you're becoming one flesh or not, is that if you think, well, you know, you and your spouse talk and you say, this is what God wants us to do. Oh, but I don't know if we should do it. Well, why? Oh, because my parents would get upset if I did that. So you know God wants you to do it. The two of you have prayed and you agree that you should do it. But now you're hesitating because you're saying, I don't know if my parents would be happy with it. You see, that's part of, you haven't really left and cleaved or been joined to your spouse if the primary person that you're hoping to disappoint is not God or your spouse, it's your parents. You see, the Bible would say it this way in your notes in Galatians chapter 1. He says, do I now persuade men? Or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You and I cannot do God's will if our intent, if our primary concern is pleasing other people. You certainly can't be happily married if you're constantly concerned with what your parents will think. You have to leave your parents in order to become one flesh with your spouse. Now, let me just, I'm not trying, I'm not saying that we have to take this to the point of the absurd. I'm not saying that, well, I just, I, I'm never going to see you again. No, it's not that. It's your, obviously, you, keep, you maintain a relationship with your parents. Be very close to your parents. You should be close to your parents. But the issue is this, but you give your first allegiance to your spouse. Now, because sometimes what parents do is they will frame this under, well, I want you to do this. Well, no, we decided not to. Well, I'm your mom, I'm your dad, and you need to honor me by doing this. Doesn't the Bible say you need to honor your parents? Let's talk about that for a moment, if we could. Um, when you're living under your parents' roof, you honor them by obeying them. All right. Um, I have two young children, uh, four and uh, four years old and 18 months, and uh, their job is to do what I tell them to do, and, and what their mom tells them to do. And I'm not saying that to be mean or whatever. It's just I'm training them to how to function in society. That's like one of my roles as a parent. So they have to listen to authority. And my wife and I, their parents, are the primary authority in their lives. But the day that they move out of my house, the day that they get married, now that will shift. And where my role when they were growing up and living in my home, my role with them was I had authority over them. Now they're entering into their own relationship when now they're answering to God, not to me primarily. And so now the issue is when, when it comes to honoring your parents, you say, well, how do I honor my parents if my parents want me to do something and I, and I don't want to do it, but, and I'm, but I'm married and children and, and whatever. Then here's what you do. Um, honoring your parents when you're married is not the same as honoring your parents when they're, when they're living in your home. Once again, when you're living in their home, you do what they tell you to do. When you're married, you honor them by respecting their position as your parents. But that doesn't mean that you're obligated to do everything that they say. Now, they may and should have a voice in your life. And depending on the level of wisdom in which they've lived, through which they've lived their life, will be the level, how loud their voice is in your life. But listen, one of the things that's important for us to notice is that you honor your parents the best. When you're actually, when you obey God and walk with him. Because then people look on and they say, this child is, is like a crown jewel to his parents. 
because he honors God, he walks with God, and he's living a life, he or she is living a life of integrity. Parents should be able to influence you to do the right thing, but you have to decide whether their counsel is worth listening to based on the kind of life that they've lived. And what I mean by that is this, is that, you know, if your parents call you because they, they need to give you financial advice, but they're, you know, and it starts out with, you know, I, after my third bankruptcy, I really learned this lesson. You see, you probably don't want to listen or write it down and do the exact opposite. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're, one of your parents calls you and they've been divorced nine times, you know, after my seventh wife, I really learned this lesson. Listen, don't, just, I don't know if I, you, I even need you to tell me this, right? But if your parents walk with God and they've been married for 30 years, you'll probably do you some good to listen to them. Why? Because it doesn't, it doesn't mean you have to do everything that they tell you to do. But listen, if, if their counsel is wise, it may save you years of pain. And that's why you have to decide that as, as you listen to the Lord. Now, let me uh, shift gears for a moment and talk to the parents if I can. There's two things that I want to tell the parents before we go on to the next point. The first is this. Um, the best way that you... Um, let me say it like this. The best way that you ensure that your kids will honor you is by living honorably. And let me say it this way, and I don't mean to sound really strong, but just for simplicity's sake, let me just say it bluntly. It's impossible to honor a fool. It's impossible to honor someone who continually makes foolish decisions in their lives. But instead... A person who lives a life of wisdom, a person who lives a life worthy of honor, will never have lack of honor. Instead, when you live a life of honor, you know what happens? Your, your kids will want to honor you because you've lived a life deserving of honor. Now, the other thing is this, going back to this, that um, a man will leave his father and mother. A, man, a, a daughter will leave his father and mother and be joined to, to, their, to their spouse. Um, sometimes, parents... The reason our kids can't leave and cleave to their spouse, leave us and cleave to their spouse, is because they don't know how to do anything. We haven't taught them the skills that they need to do that. Um, or we do completely ridiculous things to keep them from becoming one flesh with their spouse. Now, let me give you an example. Your son, let's say, comes up to you and says, you know, here's the deal. I'm 21. I want to get married. And um, but I, I don't really have enough money to afford to live on my own. But here's what I'm thinking is that maybe I can get married and then my girlfriend can come and live with me like in my room. Um, and and then, you know, just until we can you know, just for a year or two or, or maybe a decade until we can really afford our, our, our own our own place. Right. And, and here's what that like. There is a right response to that question. You may want to jot this down. And here's what it is. Are you out of your mind? Were you dropped on your head? I mean, no, you can't do that. You know why? Because if you can't afford an apartment somewhere, right? If you can't, like, get through a job interview and someone hire you, you're actually going to talk a woman into marrying you, right? So you haven't talked the manager of McDonald's to hire you, and you think you're going to talk a woman into marrying you? First of all, that's delusional. Secondly, it's not going to happen. And thirdly, it's insane. Now, the thing that's important is this guy's not ready to get married. Basically, he's looking for a roommate he can have sex with while mom still does his laundry and cooks his favorite meals. It is a horrible way to start a marriage, and it is no way to actually become one flesh. And you say, well, that's being extreme. Maybe I am being extreme. But, here, but we do things to a lesser extreme, right? You know what the best, I didn't say this in the first service, but I'll tell you this. 
Do you know what one of the best things that ever happened to me was, um, and it doesn't have to be this way, but it, 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 it happened to me, was um, when I was in college, I got my own apartment. And I moved out for a year before I got engaged. The best thing that ever happened to me. I was dead broke. That apartment was nasty. It had, it had uh, uh, like a, this yellowish-orange shag carpeting, like from the 70s. But, man, I learned how to wash dishes. I learned how to use uh, a vacuum cleaner. Uh, I learned how to wash my own clothes. I, I remember the first time I was there, I looked at the, the washing machine, and I'm like, I don't even know. I don't even know. I, I, this is how clueless I was. I looked, and I didn't even know which one was the dryer. I mean, I was totally clueless. I called Carrie, who we were dating at the time, and I'm like, I need you to come and, like, help me with this laundry. And, uh, and she's like, well, what, what used to happen? What happened at your house? She's like, well, I would put my clothes in a pile, and then they would just appear clean and folded on my bed. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I'm like, you know, I put them in a pile, but nothing's happening. And she's like, and these were her words, Bob, welcome to the real world. And, uh, and this is before the show. And, uh, and, 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 but here's the thing, like, I'm, I wasn't being trained, right? And he's, you know, and, and, and here's the thing. And once again, I, you know, my, my parents had like an old school mentality, you know, my son's never going to wash a dish or do laundry or whatever. And that's just foolishness. Um, and, and, and yet here, here's the thing. Our goal as parents, and now, and here's the point of that. We have to train our kids to have the skills to be able to make it in the world. And now, now the point is this. Our goal as parents is to teach kids how to be marryable. How do you get married? How do you conduct yourself? How do you have a career? How do you walk in wisdom? And most importantly, how do you walk with God in this world? But that starts early. Kids need responsibility. And listen, I, I walk in our children's ministry every week. And you know what I see? Lots of young kids. That's a wonderful thing. It starts at that age. My daughter, from the time she was 18 months old, she could play with any of her toys whenever she wanted. But at the end of the night, she had to pick all of her toys up and put them back in the toy box at 18 months old. Do you have any idea how long it takes uh, an 18-month-old to put away like a bunch of toys? It's like an eternity. And I'm like, it would take me 45 seconds to do this, but I'm, we're trying to train her for something. So I sit in the door and Mia, put away your toys. Okay. Oh, that one's nice. What does that do? Me, I put it in the toy box. Okay. Next one. <laughs> put it in the toy box. Okay. And it, this goes on like for hours. Now I've got two of them. Right? And then, so it's like, you know, and now I got, my wife and I are like, you know, it's like, you know, man on man coverage. So it's like, you know, I'm in one room. Me, clean up your toys. Xander, clean up your toys. You know, same thing. Xander, stop hitting things with the toys. Just put them in the, in the thing. And then, but one day, Mia comes into my room. She says, Poppy, come here. She takes me into her room, and without even being told, she cleaned up all of her toys. Oh, we had a party that day. But once again, it was like, a, it was like an eclipse. It only happens once every, you know, couple of years. So it was very exciting. <clears throat> Usually she has to be told. <clears throat> but the thing is this. You, we have to train kids to be responsible. You train kids to be generous. You train kids to, to go out of their way for, for the other people in, in, in their family. That doesn't start, you train them to be responsible. It doesn't start on their 21st birthday. It starts from the time that they're born and it works up until that now they're ready to get married and you say, this one's ready. He's ready. He knows what he's going to do and he's going to do great. <clears throat> and it's not because he doesn't need us anymore. And that's the thing that happens with parents. And listen, I understand this. It's not that they don't need us anymore. 
It's just they need us, but they need us in a different way. You see, here's what the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 1. It says, uh, it says, My child, listen when your father corrects you. Do not neglect your mother's instruction. What you learn from them will crown you with grace and be a chain of honor around your neck. <clears throat> listen, let me tell you something that's a little, maybe a little more personal in nature. Um, when I think about why parents don't train their children to go or to be ready to go, I understand why. It's because you don't want them to go. My daughter is four. My son is 18 months. And, um, you know, I, I think about my daughter a lot. In, um, and I, I am dreading the day that she will look forward to the most in her life, her wedding day. I'm dreading it. I think about it all the time. It's like it tortures me. Um, you know, I, I like I, I honestly I'm I'm dreading it. And uh, this week, you know, my, my daughter loves the movie Tangled, you know, the Rapunzel movie. Um, and so I bought her the soundtrack to the movie. And so we we listen to the soundtrack. I don't know, several times a day. And uh, so but the other day she put on she put on the, the soundtrack and she's like, Poppy, let's dance. And so we're dancing. Right. And then I pick her up and we're dancing. We dance a lot in our house. And um so we're dancing and I'm spinning her around and all that. And then I just have this flash, right, that someday I'm going to dance. And it's going to be like that father-daughter dance at, at, her, um, at her wedding. And I just started to cry. And she's like, Bobby, what's wrong? Don't you like the music? And I'm like, oh, Mama, I love the music, but I just love you more. And I just, I mean, and I just got, like, out of, to, out of control, you know. And, and it's, um, <clears throat> and as a dad, <clears throat> it's the most horrible I mean, think about what we say. You know, the father comes down the aisle and he gives the bride away. He gives her away. I don't want to give her away. I want her to stay with me. I have her whole life planned out, and it all involves her staying very close to me. Right? <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and, 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 and so, and the whole thing, because I can't imagine someone loving that little girl any, more than I can. It's, it's unfathomable to me. But here's the thing, to not prepare her to leave and to not prepare my son to leave and cleave to their spouse, guess what? <clears throat> it would make me a selfish and irresponsible parent. I can't do that. But if I teach them to leave us when they say I do with their spouse, it will make my voice louder when they need to hear the voice of wisdom. And it's not once again that they don't need me, it's that they're going to need me in a different way. And so I have to train them. And whoever is this guy that, who I've prayed for since the day she was born, so this guy's going to have however many years of prayer that I've been praying for him. And if you don't do that, you pray for your, your kid's future spouse. Trust me, they need it. Um, because I, I think about when, when my daughter meets him and he, he becomes, you know, he expresses his interest. I look forward to the super hard time that I'm going to give him. That's like the only joy I'm going to get out of this whole situation. Um, but listen, but when you train them to go, you know what happens? It's part of how they become one. But we have to give them the skills that they need. Mom and dad, we have to help our kids to be able to go so that they can become one flesh with their spouse. And husband's wife, you, you've got to be willing to say, Mom and dad, I love you so much and I'll always love you. But my primary identity is shifting. To where I was your son or daughter and now I'm this person's husband or wife. That's the first time. Second time this verse comes up is in Matthew 19. If you turn there, 
It says this. It says, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these things that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just, underline this, any reason? And the Pharisees also came to him, uh, I'm sorry, in the verse 4, and he answered them and said, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. You see, um, the other day, my, da- my daughter has all these um, like Disney princesses. They're like an action figure form. And so all of the dresses that they have are all interchangeable. And so she loves this thing. She plays with it all the time. And she has them all in like this little box. And uh, the other day, she came running to me. Bobby, Bobby, I have a big problem. I have a big problem. And I, I said, what happened? And then she said, um, Ariel lost her head, like Ariel's head. Uh, and I, she was freaking out. I mean, <laughs> and I'm like, Mia, calm down. I'm a doctor. And I specialize in decapitations. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and she's like, decapitatos? What's that? Not decapitatos. I specialize in potatoes as well. I specialize in decapitations. Follow me. Will you be my nurse? She said, yes. I said, all right, come on, nurse. So I got my stethoscope. We have one in the house. I don't know why we have them, but we have one. And uh, so we got the stethoscope and we went to the kitchen counter and she got her step stool and we made like a little operating table. And then I said, I need my special tools, which are which were needle nose pliers and uh, crazy glue. By the way, if you ever go to a doctor, go on the table and the doctor says, I need two nurse. I need two things, needle nose pliers and crazy glue. You may want to run. But in this case, it actually worked out well. So I kind of get it and, and put the head back on. And uh, there was a little bit of a problem. I did fix it, uh, fix Ariel and put her head back on. But once the crazy glue happened, she couldn't move her neck anymore. So her neck was totally fused. So Ariel is like this. She's like, Poppy, she can't turn her neck. And her shoulder only comes up so far. And I'm like, you know, under the sea, you don't need that much mobility. So it's all right. And uh, she seemed to be okay with that answer. And um, But here's the thing. She was very excited once, you know, Ariel's head was back on and she's like, Poppy, let's high five. So I go to high five her and that's when I realized I had glued all of my fingers together with the crazy glue. And I, I mean, literally, it was like this. And I'm like, let's do a fist bump instead. So we did the fist bump. And, and then uh, so she was OK. And then I had to call my Mia went away. I didn't want her to see the doctor had hurt himself. And so anyway, my wife came out. She had to put like a special chemical and, uh, you know, because I started to do it. and I ended up ripping a bunch of skin off. And, you know, the thing about crazy glue is that it really doesn't come off. That's the moral of the story, and uh, is that it really doesn't. But, you know, the thing is this, it, because when, when super glue puts two things together, they really don't come off. Um, when God puts two people together, guess what? It's very difficult for those two, two things that became one to become two again. And the reason is this, is because if, in your notes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, God shows us how he puts two people together and makes them one. He says this, two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls down and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Here's what God says. 
And every, every wedding I've ever done, I've always referenced this passage. And I've always told the, the groom, and I say now, you're one strand. And I turn to the bride and I say, and you're, you're the other strand. I said, but there's this third strand, this third cord that's not quickly broken. And it's God himself who wants to intertwine himself in you and through you and around you that the closer that you guys draw to God and to each other, the closer that he will make you because what God is doing today is creating, is taking two people and making them one flesh. And that's why when Jesus is going to talk about this issue of divorce and separating one and making them two again, he goes back to the beginning and he answers the question based on the unity that happens in marriage. And so that's why he says, they ask the question, well, is it for any reason? And here's, and here's what he says. Um, well, when he gives his answer, the thing you have to understand is that there was two rabbis in that day that were greatly revered. Uh, one was named Hillel, the other was named Shammai. Um, they were both revered, but they both had very, very different views of, um, of, of interpreting the Torah. In fact, uh, one ancient Jewish source says that there were 300 major uh, areas of disagreement between um, Hillel and Shammai. Just to give you one idea, um, uh, Hillel believed that, that every bride is beautiful on her wedding day. Um, Shammai believed that only, um, you're only beautiful if you think you're beautiful. And, and this comes to like this, he had like this extreme view of telling the truth. And so if he went to a wedding and he didn't think the bride looked um, particularly good, he would tell her that she was ugly. And um, because you cannot lie, you can't even say, oh, you know, you're you're beautiful. You know, kind of like you go to some like someone's house for dinner and then they make something and then you eat it and it's horrible. But you're like, and they, hey, how is it? And you're like, oh, it's something else. You know, it is something else. It ain't what you said it was. It's something else. And, uh, you know, can I have the recipe? Because you're thinking I'm going to have the recipe so I can burn it so no one else can eat this. Um, this is going to be my contribution to society. Now, and it, he said that's out. But one of the areas of, of contention for them was in the area of divorce. Hillel believed that you could divorce your wife for any... By the way, in this culture, women could not divorce their husbands. Only husbands could divorce their wives. Uh, but uh, his thing was, but a man could divorce his wife for any reason. In fact, he lists several reasons as to why he could divorce his wife. If he doesn't like her anymore, that's another reason. In fact, he says if she even cooks his eggs wrong, he can divorce her. In fact, one of the things, reasons that he gives is that if he leaves home and he's going somewhere, and he sees a woman more beautiful than his wife, that would upset him for the fact that he married a woman less beautiful than he, than he thinks he could get. He could, that could upset him, and he would get divorced. And all he would have to say is, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you three times, and that's it. And then, of course, you know, they would write a certificate of divorce, because, you know, you've got to keep it legal. Um, and, uh, and so that was the whole thing. Now, this was such an important issue... And uh, because the Pharisees were a bit divided, the, the, this, the group of religious leaders, because there were some Pharisees who were of the school of, of Shammai um, and some, school, some who were of the school of Hillel. Hillel believed that pretty much anything goes. Shammai believed that it's only for issues of, uh, of sexual immorality and adultery that, that was, um, those were the only reasons for, for divorce. Now, Jesus gives his reason after he says, you know, what God has put together, let no man separate. But then they ask him, well, then why did Moses say that to give a certificate? Why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? And then listen to Jesus' response in verse 8. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And then he goes on and he says that it's, it's really for sexual immorality 
that, um, that, that divorce is even permitted. And the issue is this, um, is that when God puts two people together, God is working to make them one flesh. That's why God says, that's why Jesus says the only legitimate reason for divorce is sexual immorality because in this area, and you can look up First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, um, you're, you're be trying to become one now with another person. And that, that kind of does that. But see, but I want you to notice here in these verses what he says is, he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted it because of sexual immorality. But, the, but from the beginning it was not so. The point is this, what Jesus boils all of this down to and the reasons that two people becoming one say, I want to become two again, here's what he boils it down to. He boils it down to the heart. He says it's hardness of heart. You say, no, it's really irreconcilable differences. Can I just tell you something? Every couple has irreconcilable differences. Right? I've been married to my wife for we just now. We just celebrated 14 years like two weeks ago. And um, thank you. Uh, we celebrate 14 years and we still have reconcilable differences. There are things we are never going to agree on. Right. I'll give you one. Here's one. I don't eat leftovers. 14 years later, I don't eat leftovers. It's just what I do. And, uh, and it, it, does it annoy Carrie? Yes, it does. Um, and she's like, well, why won't you do it? I said, because it's not in the Bible. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, she says, you watch baseball. That's not in the Bible. I say, yes, it is. She says, where? I say, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it's there. You just got to find it. And uh, so anyway, um, there's so many of that. Anyway, I, I could go on. Uh, and that, but this is that fashion. She's like, you drive a Honda. Is that in the Bible? I said, yes, it is. The Bible says that the disciples were all in one accord. Anyway, so... Um, And this is where the women in the room are like, this guy is absolutely impossible. And you were probably right. Um, uh, <laughs> but what I lack in eating leftovers, I make up for in humor. Um, but, and, but here's the thing. Now, here, here, here's, here, here's the deal. We all have irreconcilable differences, right? There's things that we're never going to agree on. But because, and the, the fundamental reason is, is because men and women are different. We're created by God that way. But the key is, are we actively pursuing becoming one flesh with our spouse? The way that we do that is, one, you leave mom and dad and you cling to your spouse and that becomes your primary identity. The second thing is, you also do it by realizing that God is the one that joins two people and makes them one. And the more that we connect to God, the more we become one flesh with our spouse. And listen, the lie that we believe sometimes is the lie that says, if I was with someone else, it would be easier. Do you know that all the statistics say that that's not true? Like, everybody knows the stats. Oh, you know, 52% of, um, of, of marriages um, end in, in divorce. But if you look at the stats a little more carefully, you know what you find? It's 43% of first marriages that end in divorce, 60% of second marriages that end in divorce, 75% of third marriages that end in divorce. I didn't even go fourth and fifth. I'm just figuring you kind of know where it's going because it's just getting, it's just getting worse. And you see a pattern. The pattern is not the other person. It's the heart. And so let me give you another stat that Gallup did not that long ago. Um, the other stat is this. If a couple has a deep faith in God, read the Bible and pray daily, attend church weekly and serve at the church that they call home, the odds of them 
getting divorced, one in 1,015. You know why? Because when God uses the superglue himself and he intertwines, he becomes that third strand in their life. Listen, it's not quickly broken. It's rarely broken because he makes them one flesh by being the third cord. Last one. I'll do this quickly. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Um, we're going to spend the next couple weeks in this passage, but I want to show you just something at, at the end of this. He says this. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now here's the third point. The second was that God unites couples when they invite him into their marriage. But the third one is this, is that God shows couples that they're not their own. They're not their own. One of the reasons that, I believe one of the biggest reasons that couples split is because they don't really know what the essence of marriage is. Like, what does marriage really boil down to? And some people erroneously believe that it's sex, and some people erroneously believe that it's, it's like a deep attraction. And, and that's why couples who want to end their marriage, they'll say, because they think it's about this deep attraction, they'll say, you see, I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Um, and and, and the, listen, those two things are wrong. The essence of a marriage is simply this. It's a vow. A vow. What, what do you mean? A vow. A vow is a commitment that you make to someone. Here's the thing about vows. Um, every wedding I've ever done, I've, said, I've shared these vows. I, I ask the, the groom, I ask the bride to repeat them. I say, I promise with God's help to be your faithful husband or wife. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, and sickness and in health, to love and serve you as Christ commands as long as we both shall live. But here's the thing about those vows. You have a couple. It's the best day of their life. It's the best they've ever looked in their lives. And yet they're talking about what if things get worse, if we get sicker, if we get poorer. Um, I'm still going to love you and serve you as Christ commands. Now, how, how is that? You don't know what's going to happen. What if, you, what if it's not poor? What if it's richer? I mean, what if you just make millions of dollars? How, you don't know how that's going to change you. What if one of you gets really sick? You don't know how that's going to change you. You don't know how it is that you're going to respond if, if one of those things happens. But that's the great thing. That's the thing that it, it just makes the essence of marriage the vow. Is because before any of these factors can influence you, you're making a decision, you're drawing a line in the sand that says it doesn't matter what happens. I'm going to be faithful to you. And I'm asking that you be faithful to me. That is the essence of marriage. It's this covenant that you make with your spouse that now leads to the purpose of marriage, which is deepest friendship. Deepest friendship. And in marriage, there's, there's no hiding. In marriage, there's no secrets. Because this person that you are married to knows you better than anyone else on the planet. And we're going to kind of, we're going to really drill down on that subject next time. By the way, that's one of the reasons why when, when um, couples say, you know, how can I marry someone if I don't know that we're sexually compatible? Um, you know, 
I've ministered to a lot of couples in my life, and, and I've, uh, I've done a lot of counseling with couples. You know, I've never had one ever in 12 years, 13 years, that have ever said to me, Pastor, our problem is we're just not sexually compatible. That's our problem. You know, and I've had people come in and tell me some crazy stuff over the years. And, uh, but I've never had that. You know why? Because it doesn't actually exist. Right? Because, right, you know, do all the parts fit? Yes. Okay, then you're compatible. It works. Right? It's the way it is. All right? But here's the thing. So, so, so what is it then? Well, now that just becomes an excuse for, 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 for what the real issue is. But I can promise you this, that a lack of communication in your marriage will eventually make its way into the bedroom and, and begin to cause problems. You see, for intimacy to be everything it can be, there has to be total trust between you and your spouse. That's why the longer, you know, I do, you know, when I've done premarital counseling for couples, I tell them this, they don't believe me. Because they're like in their 20s and they're like as strong and in the best shape of their lives or whatever. And they say, it's never going to be better than this. And I tell them, guess what? The longer that you're married and the, the, the more trust that you have with each other, the better the intimacy is together. And they say, no, nah, that ain't true. I've been married, I've married a long time. I'm telling you it's true. And yet here's the thing. If you want your intimacy with your spouse to be great, you have to be emotionally naked with each other. You don't keep things from each other. You're open in your communication because that's... When, a God, when God wants to make a couple one, there, there aren't two teams. That's why it's a, the point was that couples, they, they aren't their own. That's why Paul uses the illustration when he says this. He says, don't you understand that we... He, he talks to husbands, he talks to wives, and he says, we're members of one another in Christ. He says, it's a great mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church, about how we become one with Him. It's in the same way that a husband and a wife become one. Because guess what? When you and your spouse fight, and one of you wins and one of you lose, you didn't, one person didn't win and one person didn't lose. You both lost. Because the issue is not being right. The issue is finding a common solution to the problem. So nobody actually wins when one of you loses. That's why, if I can just tell you something really, really practically. Um, and, and my wife and I have done this, and, and many times... Um, because my wife is much more godly than I am, um, and she's going to be up here soon, and you'll, you'll know. Um, but here, here's the thing. Many times it's my wife who does this, and, um, and sometimes I do it, but more often than not it's her, and we'll be having a discussion, and uh, it, it, we can, you know, sometimes you have a discussion, you feel like it begins to escalate a little bit, and it's like, well, I have an idea, and I have an idea, and I think this, and I think this, and um, sometimes I'll take her hand, but many times she takes, she takes my hands, and you want to note this. Um, she takes my hand, and she says this, I am not your enemy. We are on the same team. And you know what it does? Diffuses everything. Oh, yeah. We're not at odds. That's right. I mean, we're, we're in the same jersey. I mean, we're, we're, we're on the same team. If, if I win the argument and she loses, we both lost. If she wins and I lose, we both lost. The, what really makes it work is when we realize we're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to find a common solution to the problem. Um. That's why Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians, the last verse on your outline. He says this, um, that we're members of one another. And he, he says it this way. He says, um, if one member suffers, we all suffer. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice. And he says, and you are all the body of Christ and members individually. Um, 
Some of you know the name C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis is an author. Some of you know him because he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia movies. Um, but uh, most of C.S. Lewis's books are actually nonfiction, and um, they, they deal with uh, different aspects of the Christian life. And he was a very committed uh, follower of Jesus. Um, his book, Mere Christianity, is one of the probably five best books I've ever read in my life. And if you've never read it, it was required reading when I was in college. Um, but he wrote a book called The Four Loves. This is kind of what I want to close with. Um, he wrote a book called The Four Loves where he describes the four types of human love. Uh, and that is affection, friendship, erotic love, and then the love of God. Um, and, and in one part of the book, he says this. He, says if, the, he talks about the difference between friendship and, uh, and erotic love. And he says this. He says, if we were to paint a picture of erotic love, it would be of two people looking at each other. But if we were to draw a picture of deep friendship, of deepest friendship, it would be a picture of two people standing next to each other looking at something else. And that, my friends, is what it takes to become one flesh. We become one flesh not when we look to our spouse to meet all of our needs. Because guess what? When you look at your spouse to meet all of your needs, that is a pressure that no one can handle. You know why? Because you're not married to God. And everyone will, will fail at some point in time. And so what we have to do is, instead of having this thing where it's about the attraction and it's about um, the, the, the intimacy, that's really what it's about. And, and th- certainly that's part of it. But what takes place is this, is that if we will stop looking at each other, but we will actually lock arms and ho- or hold hands and, and stand next to each other and look at something else, you know what we'll find? We'll find the one who actually can meet all of our needs. Because marriage was never built to meet all of your needs. God created you so that he could meet all of your needs. And so instead of looking to each other for everything, instead you look side by side and you lead each other to Christ. That's why the, the, the purpose of marriage, the essence of marriage is avowed with the purpose, is deepest friendship. And that's when you realize that God's purpose for bringing this person into my life is not to meet my own needs, but to continually draw me to Christ, to be my closest friend, to be my covenant partner, that we would take steps towards God. And as we take steps towards God, we take steps towards each other and we become one flesh. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this gift called marriage. Thank you that you are willing and desiring to take two people and make them one and be that third strand that, that unites us. God, I pray for every marriage here that we begin the path of becoming one. And God, for every marriage, every single person and every person who's going to get married, that future relationships that are represented, that you would give us the wisdom to be ready to become one flesh when you bring that person into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.